right, welcome back everyone to another episode of another season, or another episode and another yeah. season, <laughs> woo, of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rocks and rocking out. Uh, we're back at it again, so a brief overview of this evening's episode will include intros and hellos, followed by new news. Our main discussion will focus on all things basins, what they are, how they form, how we study them. And then between the bars of our discussion, we'll present to you another season of Mineral Minutes. <laughs> and before signing off, uh, we'll close things out with our little musical segment that we call That Freaking Rocks. We would like to thank all of the listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs, both to our new listeners and to our returning listeners alike, and for spending your time with us each week. If you'd like to reach out to us, whether it be for episode ideas, answers, you are wanting answered if you fancy being a guest or you just want to tell us about all the time that we have misspoke you can reach us at geologyotr at gmail.com or you can find us on instagram at geology on the rocks podcast (laughs) i got the black lines already starting (laughs) so it looks like things are squared away on our end so without further ado i am your host james the geologist and i'm brian baggins and this is geology geology on on the rocks rocks. (laughs) so we're back at it again how's it going man wow man it feels like eternity. It does. It's like a regular part of my life. It was gone for what, a week and a half, two weeks? I I, I think it's going to border on three weeks whenever this one gets out. Yeah. But, so, yeah. I mean, how was your holiday? So, I think we stopped it right before Christmas when we did the, what was the, <laughs> five oh, yeah. oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> what, what was the, the volcano that I, oh, I'm okay. So, I, 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 pro- I, I tried practicing it like all during the row. I was like, Aya Fiatla Ayaktol. Yes. Wow. Aya Fiatla Ayaktol. <laughs> Dude, I was, oh my goodness. And then for like the the rest of Christmas, I uh, my youngest, he was, he would just constantly blurt out, ah, and then you go, ah, you sing it, dad. <laughs> so, no was, so you have a good holiday, Christmas? Yeah, it was quiet. We didn't really do much. We stopped by my fault and it was like a very distant Christmas. So that was about it, really. Yeah, it's so um, sad. I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy it. I'm ready for everyone to get this herd immunity. I know. Yeah. Ready for vaccines and let's get this crap behind us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is like, I had to do a test, Um, I guess it was beginning of last week. And I was negative, yeah. but my band, we did a live stream on Friday and my guitarist now tested positive. Uh. And so I'm like, I was wearing masks, but they weren't. And so I'm like, Pah. Like, that's why we're not together right now. Yeah, that's why we're on the phone. um, I normally don't go anywhere. You guys, like, I've been, like, doing so well. So good. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I don't have it. Yeah, and and that's one of the things. I don't want to find out if I, you know, if I do get it, am I going to be one of the ones that it doesn't uh, bode well for me? That makes sense. Yeah. Exactly. I don't want to mess around with it. Yeah, yeah like, ugh. I, it just makes me want to go, you're so sexy. What? You're so sexy. Oh. So, yeah, all right. So that <laughs> has been intros and hellos. Yeah, I think we should get on to a little bit of new news. I'm excited about your story this week, Brian. No, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> you told me about this and I instantly was just like, yep, that sounds like something we would talk about. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. I'm going to lead things off this week because I know we, we talked about it last season a little bit and I, I we gave Australia the bad name of having this crazy lake that calcified birds. 
There is in Tanzania, so it's in Africa, and the lake that I was talking about before, it's called Lake Natron, or Natron. I'm not sure how you say it, but what what this lake does is that the seawater comes in, but it's not able to come out. And what it does is it makes this lake super salty, and then then there's a lot of carbonate in it, so it it makes it uh, almost like ammonia. So I think the pH was actually, it's like like a 10 point something. So yeah. what happens is, is like these, it's, oh yeah, it's, it's measured as high as 10.5. I believe one known fish to be that lives in it, that feeds off the algae and then flamingos feed off the algae in this place, but it's, it's, it's corrosive, right? So these animals go into it. They think that something with like the density of the water and the way that it reflects that uh, these animals and birds will like fly into it and they're <laughs> basically preserved. It's, it's really where they're like calcified. So it's this really yeah. eerie. It's just crazy. So that's my story. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, that's probably a, like, I wonder if young earthers think that happened everywhere with all the fossils. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess. I, I, I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> all right. So my my first news story is, yes. um, is centered around insect, a cicada, right? And the fungus, it's like massospora. I remember seeing something similar to this on planet Earth, but not in this sense. The fungus infects the cicada insect and it makes the males really horny <laughs> and they <laughs> want to mate with everything. And this is as the fungi are like eating away their limbs and even like their butts and oh genitals will fall off. Oh my God. But the cicadas are so like they're on the psychedelic trip. So they just still are trying to mate <laughs> after half their body is gone. Oh my God. Are you, are you serious? That's nuts. So it makes the, the fungi like actual fun guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it basically turns these cicadas into 16-year-old little boys, right? Right, and <laughs> makes their bodies rot off. <laughs> but they don't care. <laughs> Dude, they, oh my goodness, okay. All right, so my, my second story, I wanted to, you know, bring to light in far north Queensland, there's actually rainforests. So this is in Australia. They have rainforests that host a neurotoxic stinging tree, right? So this, this tree is said to, when you touch touch it, you can just barely touch it, and it feels like being burnt with hot acid and electrocuted at the same time, causing <laughs> causing months of excruciating pain. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, so it's this this uh I, I um, again, I'm not a worder, but it's called a dendro dendrochnide plant in Australia's uh rainforest and it has these broad fuzzy looking leaves. It just one little tiny touch of it can leave a person in pain for days or weeks, but you know, there it's been reported that this is what it feels like, but they've done a close up on it that it looks like shards of these they look like icicles but there's just a a lot of them but what it what it's actually doing is that it's the the neurotoxin it's like being injected with venom from i don't know a spider or whatnot but the molecule not only ignites nerve cells to send pain signals but it also makes it stick around in the body and prevent the signal from ever turning off thanks a lot australia you bring us so much why Why? even their their trees like You'd expect this out of any spider from there almost. Yeah. I want to go to Australia so bad, but... uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Oh my God. So I have my final story for the new news, and this one's really cool. They uh, took some sediment cores from the Pacific Ocean, okay. and they found some bacteria in the cores that were over a hundred million years old, and they woke back up. Get out. So when we- they were inch, yeah. Oh. We introduced the nitrogen and carbon in the lab. Oh my god! So I, I, this kind of like I don't know if this is like freaking me out because I know we talked about it on the the last episode we did, right? With the viruses coming back to life, you know, from yeah. the, the, the the dead carcasses of the reindeer. But God, a hundred million year old, just <laughs> this new bacteria, just like hey. And we don't even know how it's going to, like, you know, interact with us. I oh, no. Oh, my goodness. They can, they can redo the weird bacteria with just bacteria. Yeah, no. I mean, and then how, like, how often is that happening? <laughs> <laughs> That's nutty. So, I mean, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, like, I'll save it for next week, next week's new news. Okay. So, we can go ahead and get into it. So, today's uh, yeah. topic, what we're going to be talking about today are sedimentary basins. I think we discussed kind of what we we're going to do about this season is kind of make it along the lines of all, all things sediment and sedimentary basins because of what you're doing at your work with uh, a provenance study, right? Which we're going to get into here in a little bit. We figure that as you go along in your study, we're going to help you out along the way, Brian, with just talking about yeah. all things all things uh, sedimentary. And, you know, honestly <laughs> forgot how much really went into all of just this one aspect of geology. <laughs> yeah, it's so complex because it can be a different, like there's so many settings God, on it. our earth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sedimentary basins for the people out there that don't know, these are just regions of earth where long-term subsidence creates accommodation space for accumulation of sediment. So when we say subsidence, it's that it's that what the lowering of the lithosphere and that accommodation, like kind of it warping. As, right. the, as the sediments are buried, they're going to be subject to increasing pressures and and then they begin the process of compaction and lithification. And this is when we really see the them turn into sediment, into sedimentary rock. So this is uh, one of the, the the three main types of, 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 of just any type of rock, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the, the official definition that we got is a sedimentary basin is a low area in Earth's crust of tectonic origin in which sediments accumulate. I think that's basically, in a nutshell, that's what it is. So sedimentary basins, they, they really range in size from as small as hundreds of meters to large parts of oceanic basins. The essential element of the concept is tectonic creation of relief. So not only does the tectonics provide a source of sediment, but also accommodates this newly formed sediment in a relatively low place for deposition. Yeah, keep in mind that a sedimentary Yeah, keep in mind that a sedimentary basin doesn't have to be a place on Earth's surface with with a like bowl shape, like a basinal shape. Yeah, with closed contours, like a washbowl, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's how it like. So it's opposite of a dome because I know we talked about uh, right. It, yeah. So it's like a you can think of like a sink. So when you think of that that subsidence <laughs> from the tectonics, it makes that bowl shape, and then with all that sediment coming in, right? Then you have the youngest. Yeah. In the middle. So it doesn't have to be just a place that's shaped like that. Great masses of sediment can be deposited on a surface with a gentle and uniform slope. But implicit in the concept of the sedimentary basin is the existence of prolonged crustal subsidence. So you, yeah. you're talking millions of years to make a place for these thick, it's got to be a thick deposit of sediment. Yeah. It might as well have been deposited, you know, in an area without basinal geometry at the surface. Yeah, okay. So it comes back tectonics is necessary. Tectonics is needed to make sedimentary basins, but the record of the basin itself is sedimentary, Watson. 
Yeah, it's sediments, my dad. What's on? Oh, sedimentary. <laughs> yeah, elementary. Yeah, like what you're saying. So tectonics is needed. So it's you can think of it as like structural, but when we talk about it, we think of it in terms of sedimentary. Yeah, so I think that's a good point. And as with most blanket statements, I think like we just mentioned, there are going to be exceptions to everything. I think that's, I, I feel like I'm the alarmist. <laughs> so a sedimentary basin can be made just by erecting high land in adjacent area by volcanism. Also important, I think we need to keep in mind is that the term sedimentary basin is usually not applied to relatively thin or very extensive deposits of sandstone, limestone, and shell that you would typically see from epicontinental seas on the edges of the craton, right? So when you have the transgressions and regressions, many of which have seen no deformation through billions of years. When we think about when we go on with the sedimentary basin, it's going to refer only to this relatively thick deposit in tectonically active areas with negative relief, right? So it's going to be, it has to be a downslope, right? Or somewhere right. for it to be accommodated, right? So that's that negative relief with intracratonic basins being an exception to that blanket statement. You know, we always say, <laughs> I just said, <laughs> intracretina, intracretina. Yeah. So that's such a, a weird one too. That well, I always just think of a Crayola box. Yeah. Crayon. Yeah. Like, cray, like, <laughs> but yeah, no, but you have these, yeah. uh, I think the negative relief with intracretina, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> intracratonic basins being the exception of that relatively thick yeah. deposits on tectonically active areas. But this, these intracratonic areas are sag basins from just, I don't know. They're, they're weird. Anyways. So yeah. I think, I think yeah. with regards to basins is that tectonics is going to be the single most important control on sedimentation with climate being a rather distant second. Yeah. So the important effects of tectonics on sedimentation, whether it's direct or indirect, they're going to include your the nature of sediment, the rate of sediment supply, rate of deposition, depositional environment, that's a big one, yeah. um, nature of source rocks, nature of vertical succession. Yeah. So in fact, like tectonics affects climate itself by way of effects as broad as the distribution of oceans and continents, but as local as rain shielding like we have in the Rockies, right? Yeah, so there's um, rain shadow. Like it, yeah. Yeah. Sedimentation itself affects tectonics, although to a much lesser extent, mainly by increasing the lithospheric loading. So your overburden pressure yeah. and weight on the basin. So it's it, it seems like it, it feeds back on itself, like back and forth, back and forth. On the, yeah. the, the other side of things is that by, by, by far, I think what we're saying is the best way of telling, uh, or I guess, I don't know if we've even said it, but the, the best way of telling paleotectonics is going to be by the sedimentary record in the sedimentary basins. The disposition of the sediment types that we're going to be seeing in the sediment thickness and paleo currents in a basin gives evidence of the existence and location of elevated areas of the crust created by tectonicism. The, the, the whole idea of this there, so why, right? So why are we studying yeah. this? What can we answer? So here's some important questions that I think geologists should keep in mind, or I mean, just, I guess anyone studying sedimentary basins, but I don't know why, <laughs> if you're not a geologist, like, why are you like, just, why some, do you, care? <laughs> you just, you're, yeah. I'm a hobby sedimentary basinist. I don't know. <laughs> the questions are that you might ask when studying such things are what was the size and shape of the basin and how did these changes as the basin was filled? Like, right. So how did the changes happen? What was happening yeah. with the, the shape and all of it? So it was the basin, was the basin floored by continental crust or oceanic crust? Because I think that's going to matter. Mm. Right. Yeah. So what are the kinds of proportions of sediments that filled the basin, right? So you can have some basins that just fill up immediately. I think that's one of the controls yeah. of eustatic sea level. And then another question you might ask is what were the sources of the sediment and what pathways was it transported to the depositional site? Yeah, we'll get into that one later. Yeah. 
I like to ask questions like, what was the history of filling of the basin? Because it may have not just a consistent flow of sediment into it. Right on. It could have been spurred different ages. You may have age gaps. Who knows? How can the original geometry of the basin be distinguished from subsequent deformation of the basin? And then also, what was the overall tectonic setting? That's kind of the overlying thing when we're talking about paleo tectonics. Yeah. So, and then like, oh. <laughs> like I get all of this. I always think back to like geologists before they had like computing power to look <laughs> at all this stuff. And they're just like, Hmm, what happened here? <laughs> and I I, know. I'm just like, good Lord. There's and like these, some of these questions, I'm just like, man, these are like, yeah. I mean, like there really is a lot that go into it. So, and then I feel like that's what the primor- primordial, <laughs> the, the primary like reason for uh, <laughs> this season is going to be, uh, sediments i'm glad that the world didn't have me as one of the founding geologists <laughs> like uh, wow we have to redo everything i, I, I feel like as a geologist we would have never gotten out of the stone age because <laughs> oh. <laughs> i like rocks <laughs> okay so um some practical things about basins that you know just just for the the funness of it so the the only basins that are preserved in their entirety are those that lie entirely in the subsurface right so like you said earlier that they could be eroded or they could have gaps in it, those unconformities that we've mm-hmm. talked about. Basins exposed at the surface are going to be undergoing destruction and loss of record by erosion. There's an ironic trade-off between having more complete preservation in the subsurface, but less satisfactory observations. Yeah, and you may like wonder, how do you gather all this data on sedimentary <laughs> basins? And really, like we have very few, but really good tools. Um, So there's not many ways, but we have like superficial mapping and that's kind of the most basic, but very important in your succession of what types of analysis are you going to do? You got to map the superficial geology. Yeah. Then you do cores, you can do subsurface geophysics, you can do geochemical studies that are doing a lot of that stuff, but mainly seismic profiling, which yeah. reminds me a lot of, yeah, this is where you, uh, you're the big shot here, right? Where, where did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can safely say it's going to be somewhere in Australia. <laughs> I'll never Maybe. forget that episode. You were like, what? Yeah. No, <laughs> I couldn't so, remember your research. Uh, dude, I, I know, but like, <laughs> so yeah, it's the, the, the Southern Carnarvon Basin in Western Australia. And we might like, you're doing your provenance study. I might get into a little bit of my study because a lot of it, I mean, it was like one big, huge basin analysis. I did a lot of the, uh, the, the pre-tectonics that kind of led into all the sediment infill and, you know, to give it kind of like why is are we seeing the sandstone here versus like this shale here i did it all the way back i saw whenever it was basically pangea you can see stuff in the rock record there but anyways i mainly integrated the seismic with gravity and magnetic data surveys so enough wow. about me more about you <laughs> so what kind of things can you do with the data uh there brian to help answer some um, of those questions that we've posed well so here's the list of some of the fairly standard things you can do these range from very descriptive to very interpretive and it makes sense to do all the descriptive things first and then work towards the more intense interpretive things so you can do master cross section so with the present land surface as the most natural datum construct several detailed cross sections through the basin to show its geometry and the sediment fill 
Yeah, and we um, kind of we kind of did that at uh, field camp, right? Like, we're, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, like, so I mean, it wasn't a sedimentary. We were in the mountains, but you do. Right. It's it's I think the same concepts, right? Where you you're going to map the 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 outcrops of the surface geology. I mean, you find all the outcrops and you do the the data on them, and then you make a map accordingly of the the area to give you a bigger kind of like regional picture, right? Yeah, and this, it's really hard. Like I remember. Like if I went there now, like I'd have a lot easier time. But at that time I was like, oh, this makes sense. And then when I like tried to draw, correlate everything, I was like, this just doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, so it's it's hard because a lot of when you're in the, when you're in sedimentary rocks, it a lot of the formations can look very similar. Yeah. And so that's it's because like think about these basins, depending on how much of like protolith that you may have, the the parent rock. Ooh, uh, you may word. have a lot of yeah, you may have a lot of material to erode. And so you may have like spurts of different types in different beds that then you'd have maybe a lesser flood or a lesser rainfall event that allowed erosion of different magnitudes. So you might you might have different varying beds yeah. in different formations, but they can start to look very similar. So depending on the size of your basin and the geometry, this can get kind of difficult. So it takes really good detailed notes out in the field and kind of stew on it later. And then, yeah, because um, can't you have, like, multiple, like, yeah, because you can't think of it just like, oh, you have one, like, stream that's coming into this basin. Like, you're having it come right. in from all sides. It's a, a depression, so <laughs> it can kind of right. get, like, intermixed and, you know, so I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and that's kind of where, you, like, the next point I'd like to make is a stratigraphic section. So, yeah. you basically, you construct graphs with time along the vertical axis showing the time correlations of all the major rock units along with some generalized traverse across the basin. So this kind of section will include hiatuses during which there was non-deposition or where there was no erosion. Okay, so isopax is, I, I think, another one that we can use that's getting a little bit more interpretive, but it's going to have some sort of distinctive stratigraphic horizons near the top of the section as a datum, so that line that we're going to connect throughout the whole area, right? And then draw a contour yeah. map showing isopax. So isopax are just the loci equal total sediment thickness in the basin. That iso just meaning the same again, I think. Right. And then we can also, we can make lithophases maps for for one or a series of times, draw a map showing distribution of the sediment tides being deposited at that time. Yeah, that's important because, like, on one side of the basin, it may you may have deposition all at the same at a at one moment in time, but like in, on one side of the basin, that may look different. Yeah, and so like you can the facies is hey this kind of enveloped it doesn't always have to be the same rock type. I think we talked about that last time uh-huh. or another one, but your facies could include several different rock types. Yeah, so it's not just based on a specific formation as far as hey this is just sandstone. You may have a sandstone shale sequence or a pinching out of the two, but it's still going to be all right there along the same formation no, or yeah. the lithophases. So it's all part of the same sequence of deposition of this particular time or kind of environment. Yeah, no, I get it. So then uh, the the other one that they can do when it comes to more computer skills, but it's still, we're getting more interpretive, are called ratio maps. So these are compute things like sand shell ratio. Uh, it's integrated over the entire section or it can be restricted to some time interval. And you what you do is you plot a contour map of these values. And then what we... Uh, talked about before previously is the the paleo current map so uh, 
one, this is used for one or a series of times, and it's a, you draw a map showing the direction of the paleo currents in the basin at that time. So paleo currents. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. And have you done that? No, but I mean, is that uh, based on foreset, like foreset angle and orientation? Yeah, and I, I would imagine it's yeah. the, uh, I, <laughs> if you remember from I said, said strat or in basin analysis where you can, there's, it's like the flow, right? The the, yeah. the flow of the direction. So this is where you, with the cross stratification, you can see which way that the the, right. the beds are going. So I was I was looking yeah. at, at, at some of my, my old notes from undergrad and I got, I, I got a lot of points taken off because I didn't draw my, my, my <laughs> graph in 3d the, oh, the way the right. way that you you cut that cross section will look completely different like if it's like oh, right yeah. if, you, if you do that cross section of the the just like what you would think of as your normal cross stratification like doing that back and forth but if you cut it at a different angle it, it looks completely different so I yeah, guess it's it's, it's it's one of those things that you gotta you just gotta do if you want all your if you want all your points you gotta draw it in 3d yeah that's and also like the paleo current they also do stuff like to tell like the height of the water column. Yeah. So when you have a flood come in, the forced angle will tell you like how high was water above the sediment that was put here in, in the with the cross stratification. So it's pretty cool. It's a little above me. So hopefully one day I'll I'll get there. Well you but, better you yeah. better get all get all up on your your paleo current directions because I we I know we have an episode coming up that's called like the the sedimentary structures, which is gonna have to yeah. to deal with all that. So Yeah. Huh. Yeah. You will be learned, huh. Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Uh, hopefully I'll remember all that. So uh, you mentioned a few. I, I recalled the grain size map. So the entire basin fill averaged vertically or for some stratigraphic interval or time interval. Yeah. You you can draw a map that shows the aerial distribution of the sediment grain size. So like if you have gravels, sands or whatever, but it's really useful in the conglomeratic basin. So you have real conglomeratic sandstones or conglomerates. You can kind of see where these spurts of sediment load and what that distribution looked like. I think when we do like like the isopack maps too, like so you you'll see like the the thinning and the where you have more of that sediment being you know deposited at so at different places. So it's not I don't ever think that it's going to be like this uniform. It's just oh okay, so this is like this two inch layer. It's always going to be two inches no matter where I'm at. Like it could be two inches in some areas, and then right it's like twenty meters in another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Also, uh, I forgot like diagrams. Like um, that's. That's something that, like, if you have a lot of data, whether you want to do, like, qualitative or semi-quantitative analysis, uh, showing the evolution of depositional paleographic, paleotectonic settings of the basin, yeah, you can do that. You do it, like, you have these diagrams that are also, like, overlaid on maps and sections. Yeah. So, like, we do these sometimes, and there was a guy that he included one of these, and we were in this meeting, and this guy was like, that's not a real map. You just drew a cartoon. <laughs> and, like, ripped him a new one. Because these are, like, big wig guys in the government. They're like, why, why did you bring this to us? Granted, that guy, the one that was chastising, was an engineer, and the other guy was a geologist. Mm. So it's like, we don't, we don't care if things look pretty. Like no. we just wanted to tell the story and that like I feel like engineers go a little too heavy on like, oh, it's gotta look good. It's got it's like, hey, you just wasted all that time and I can do the same thing just by drawing on a napkin. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, like do you remember like, the core feldspar and lithic diagrams? And you can like see like you can point out like how much quartz is, like sand grains do we have, how many lithics, 
yeah. and all that. You can then use that in your basin also, and you can be like, okay, well, here I have this percentage. So I'm able to see like, okay, do I see like an alluvial fan that came down and distributed more here? Like what happened? So yeah. there's a lot of stuff you can use with this. Final stuff, always draw it to scale. At least yeah. do that. Yeah, always put like something in for scale. So yeah, just with like, and I and I think within the past ten years or so, like computational techniques known as backstripping have also been developed to undo the dep- deposition of these sedimentary basins, which I think is like really really cool because you can build out these models and then the way that it looks now, and you can kind of backstrip because like the weight that it exerts and all this stuff. But anyways, so it it it's what it's doing is it, it involves restoring the basin to a whole series of past configurations by removing one layer of sediment at a time and adjusting for that compaction subsidence and sea level change right so this all affects it yeah so you can actually like do this and i i you do a lot of this whenever you're doing like the thermalness when it comes to estimating like reserve Uh, size with uh, oil and gas which is part of all this that we'll get into too but basins are important so this lets you reconstruct the configuration of the basin through time perhaps by drawing a palinspastic cross section for various time intervals so in a way this is the next best thing to have in your possession a time lapse movie of the entire development of the basin so i mean just could you imagine like a prison sentence or something that you just had to sit there and document hour by hour development of this basin (laughs) so my god yeah so i guess it'd be important to talk a little bit about i guess how the basins are actually made right so that's uh yeah so i mean it takes a long time right so that's why i said if if it was like a sentence you'd have to sit there be like okay well we had (laughs) i don't know you know what i was trying to say yeah so how are basins made I guess we can think of it in one sense. The origin of sedimentary basins boils down to just basically the question of how relief on the earth was created. And relief is just that what difference in height. And pretty much there's only a few ways that this happens. Yeah, and one of the ways is known as just local. So on a small scale, hundreds, thousands of meters laterally, fault moves. They create the relief, hundreds to thousands of meters, resulting in small but often deep basins. Some of these are called intermontane basins. Um, if you think Death Valley, that's yeah. one of those. Okay. Um, yeah, you might guess that it's going to take a dip slip fault to create this new relief, but that's really not the case. In like steps in the proper sense, a long stripe lip fault can produce small pull apart basins. Okay. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying is the relief is <laughs> kind. <a> lot. <laughs> <laughs> but, but basically, what you're saying is the relief is this kind of like basin deformation is on a smaller scale. Yeah, for these local ones, and okay. it tends not to be isostatically compensated. It's like uh, let's pretend you go out on your driveway and you set a huge block of granite on it. All right. Yeah. So in my mind, I have a huge <laughs> slab of beautiful garnet rich granite countertops. They're being delivered. Okay. They're sitting, Interesting. They're sitting on why my... Do you, why, do you have, why do you have garnet in your granite? Because uh, it's late stage granite formation. <laughs> We still have to have our, our granite. Uh, I know. So I, I I feel like there does need to be a conversation about the, the catch-all <laughs> the catch-all phrase of granite countertops. Yes, yes, yeah. we will. Okay, so back to your beautiful... They're sitting on my driveway reason, now, right? Garnet rich you got, granite. You got me all <laughs> fired up. <laughs> yeah, so, so we'll go back to that beautiful little slab. The flexural rigidity of your driveway is great enough compared with the imposed load that the granite block prevented from finding its buoyant 
equilibrium position. Yeah, so that that's what you were saying by the isostatically being compensated. Right. So it's not finding that. Yeah, because I know there's a lot of uh, lithospheric like flexure. Like, like let's say like you have a mountain building event. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah, the weight of that mountain pushing down on the lithosphere, right? It, it's pushing down and it's causing flexure like on all sides of it. So you're creating like these basins, and then you know you kind of get this pop up on the other side, and then it it balances itself out. But so these, yeah. <laughs> basically what you're saying is that this doesn't happen on the, the regional scale. So the basin relief can be created mechanically on a regional scale in two very important ways. So we can think of this as thermally or flexurally or mm-hmm. by a combination of these two effects together. So each of these discussed briefly, and we need to keep in mind that the basins can also be made just by making mountain ranges on land in the mm-hmm. ocean or by volcanism. Huh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so thermal is another one and it's basically yes. if the lithosphere if the lithosphere is heated from below it's going to expand slightly and yep. become less dense so the less dense lithosphere it's going to adjust isostatically to flow higher in the asthenosphere producing what we see at the earth's surface as what we would call like a crustal uplift makes um, sense yeah and so if it cools the lithosphere cools back to its original temperature, there's isostatic subsidence back to the original level. Yeah, so it, it's, it, it's just, this, this one is one of those harder concepts that I'm just like, man, it really hurts me. Because I, I have to think of it like on this big scale because I think of like it, uh, you know, I, I see it there, you think of like, uh, you know, rift basins where you have that, uh, you know, the decompression melting and then it thins the lithosphere and but like, I'm just like, yeah. and then they're like, oh, that's where, so they say that it, it, it rises up there, right? But then yep. that that's where ocean basins are made. So I'm like, I'm always confused. <laughs> I'm like, it's, it's, it's lifted, but in it, yeah. But yeah, so like, suppose that some erosion takes place while the crust was elevated, right? So I guess that's uh, the the crust is thinned where the erosion took place and thickened somewhere else where there was deposition of yeah. that erosion, right? So that might be far away at the mouth of some long river system. So when the this crust cools again, it subsides to a position lower than where it started, thus creating a basin available for all of this infill of sediment. Yeah, the magnitude of crustal lowering by mechanism is less than is often observed in basins thought to be created thermally. So it's been proposed and widely accepted that in many cases, extensional thinning of the lithosphere accompanies heating. Then upon that recooling event, the elevation of the top of the lithosphere is less than what it was before the heating and extension. So this kind of subsidence invoked to explain many sedimentary basins. Yeah, yeah. And then lastly, briefly, we could talk like, so there's also this flexural type of uh, relief being created. So another important way is to make basins is to park a large load on some area of the lithosphere. This new load causes that lithosphere to subside by isostatic adjustment. But because the lithosphere has a considerable flexural rigidity, adjacent lithosphere is going to be bowed downward also as well. So the region between the high standing load and the lithosphere in the far field in the the, in the parlance of geophysics, let's <laughs> just a fancy <laughs> word for meaning far away, right? So yeah. it's it's thus it's going to be depressed to form a basin. So I've, what is this like the four 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 land base? I don't know. So this yeah, this model has I been guess. very successful in accounting for the the features. Uh, it says it right there: four land basins which are formed ahead of large thrust sheets that move out from the orogenic areas onto previously undeformed cratonic lithosphere. <laughs> 
<laughs> that was a that was a mouthful as well. Yeah, the crayons again. So, um, so so we talked about we talked about how they form and like what the settings are there. But how do we classify them? We have a little list here of some of the important criteria that could be used, ranging from more descriptive at the top to more generic at the bottom. So you will have, we want to classify them by the nature of the fill, yep. uh, the geometry of the basin, paleogeography, and also the, where we keep pointing back to the tectonic setting. Yeah, so that's going to be like, where is it coming from and the nature of the fill? Yeah, yeah so like in grad school, there was the the geometry of basins. I don't know, I forget what it was, the hell it was called, but it was like something along those lines. It's anyways, yeah, so, it, <laughs> so we did like, it, it takes into account, we studied all the different types of uh, geometry basins and how the tectonics affected it so right then it changed the the paleogeography and then it you know you would see different fills based on like right so is it, it does it, it's gonna yeah. ha- is it going to be in a salt field are you going to have a lot of are you going to even be in a place to have oil and gas anyways blah, blah, blah. so nowadays sedimentary <laughs> basins are really going to be classified by tectonic and specifically plate tectonic settings so that's fairly easy to do for modern basins and but it's rather difficult to do for ancient basins right so i think we can mm-hmm. just kind of think about that just for a little bit so by modern basins we're just saying that those basins still within their original tectonic setting by ancient basins we are saying that those basins now are separated from their original tectonic setting this emphasizes the need for good descriptions like you said in characterization so even if some kind of formal descriptive classification is not actually going to be used right so it's i think Mm. it boils down to you just need to take lots of good notes that's how that's how we're able to do the podcast is we take good notes yeah well honestly like a geologist is useless without their notes uh-huh. yeah no, I, you'll think you'll remember everything and then you get back and you're like oh yeah i like, know but it's I, I, why did i not write that down yeah, yeah uh, but I, I guarantee you took a rock from that place <laughs> i did yeah no yeah no it's all <laughs> like and then just like there's so much that goes into it that you need to account for like when we get into it so we'll see yeah but until yeah. In, until we get there brian no, no. <laughs> Mineral minutes. Yes. Minerals. Mineral. Mineral. Uh, Mineral minutes. Minerals. Minerals. All right. So this week's mineral minute is brought to you by the potassium magnesium iron silicate fluoride mineral. <laughs> All right. Stop, man. <laughs> Fluorotetraferroflogopite. Wow. That was really good. Fluorotetraferroflogopite is a member of the biotite group, trioctahedral mica group. Yeah, so the fluorotetraferroflogopite's chemical formula is KMG3 Fe3 plus Si3O10 F2. Fluorotetraferroflogopite is brown <laughs> with a early luster and streaks white. Yes, so this mineral has a hardness of 3 to 4 with perfect basal cleavage. Fluorotetraferroflogopite has a specific gravity of 2.966 calculated. Yeah, so the, the fluorotetrafera flogopite is part of the monoclinic crystal system with the subhedral to euhedral platy crystals. Fluorotetrafera flogopite is a phyllosilicate with mica sheets composed of tetrahedral and octahedral net. The, 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 the fluorotetrafera flogopite is typically a metamorphosed <laughs> carbonate rock and its type locality is East Mine Bayan Obo Deposits. <laughs> Baotou City, Inner Mongolia, China. Does that ring a bell to you? No. 
No, it doesn't. Baotu? Is it That's where. Oh the, wait, we talked about that. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's wow. where they they found it. I don't know if it's from that toxic sludge, but it's it's. Yeah, probably. And yeah. then you know what, dude? I I purposely left this over here. Like I was flipping through my um my petrology notebook from undergrad, and I turned to yeah. a random page, and it says phlogopite. <laughs> Right. So I don't yeah. know. It, it's it's the categorization based on reaction effects and it's a net transfer reaction. Who knew? So well, anyways, I you know what? I have I have a ton of logopite here because when we went to Crater of Diamonds, yeah. like the way it's embedded in the in the volcanics there, it shines like little diamonds. Oh, okay. But then when you like look at it differently and break it out, it's just little pieces of logopite because it needs like the real potassic lavas. Yeah. And so that's where you that's why you have it really heavy in potassium. And then you get the fluorotetraferra logopite from the, yeah. the 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 metamorphism of carbonate rocks. Kind of like the oh, wow. the woolly mutholite. <laughs> <laughs> Would you yeah, I forgot, would you? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, stay tuned for next week's mineral, Floro Edenite. Mineral. Uh. Mineral minutes. Yeah. Mineral. <laughs> okay, we're not going to go through all that since we're already at 40, <laughs> 50 minutes. What? Where does the time go? Wow. Yeah, so this is the Floro, Oro, Roro, Roro uh, <laughs> mineral series. So, yeah, on to you and provenance studies there, my, my yeah. dude. Yeah, I'm glad that we could fit this in. I, I remember doing... <laughs> <laughs> you got me. So, um, I remember when I worked under Batu and I was helping Dr. Fan out, they are like, hey, we need to do some provenance studies. And I'm like, okay, what the hell is that? So I had to look it up, whatever. So now I'm like, I, I did a few of those and it was really cool. Yeah. I never thought I'd see it again, and especially in my line of work. But now that I'm doing a little bit more of this paleo flood type of analysis, someone asked for my help, and they were like, hey, we have basically this deposit. We need to know where it came from. Normally, we don't care about that. Okay, so uh, it's we, we, more or less it's what you're, so it's where it's coming from. So you're doing uh, kind of like that backstripping, kind of like you're uncovering where all yeah. of this is coming from, right? Yeah, you basically are like almost a, a forensic geologist without having to deal with people. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. So I wanted to talk about what a provenance study is, Ooh. and it's, it's a type of study that you can use in all ages of geologic material. And we're going to know, like, without a doubt, like we, even when we talked about the basin stuff, yeah. Um, sediments, and this, this fits in with basins, but sediments going to come from multiple sources. It right. can be reworked and transported hundreds of miles. Streams, rivers, alien deposits, they can cross multiple formations of varying ages and pick up sediment from there. I guess what I'm, because I, I will not lie to you, I have never done a provenance study, but that's why we're, I will get you through the, the all the, the sediment stuff. So <laughs> what is this, uh, basically yeah. the application you're going to be using it for? What's the end game? Okay, so what we're going to use this one for is basically it's a part of a paleo study. So we're, when we look at these things, we're looking at like how we're looking for, and I've mentioned it before, like evidence of floods, um, okay. prehistoric floods, so that we can add a data point in instead of just an, a model with no real data. And so you're looking at like young deposits, quaternary age usually. And so this, this exact problem, and I can be pretty non-descriptive on it so that I'm not infringing on my government duties. <laughs> yeah. But basically, there's a deposit with close proximity to the Rocky Mountains in southern Colorado, but kind of near northern New Mexico. This deposit that has either, they can't tell if it's been blown in from a nearby sandstone or if it came from a flood that came 
from the Rocky Mountains. Okay, so and yeah, so, I mean, like, I mean that that whole area. No, I got yeah, you. And, yeah, so the deposits give a little description. It's a fine grained sand and silt, and it's inset in Cretaceous sandstone. So when I say inset, it's not like you would basically see this within the layers. That there was some erosion that happened, scouring of the sandstone, and then this deposit is kind of placed up in there. All right. So then, how would you determine if the the sediment would be a major flood or even blown in by nearby sandstone sources? Yeah, like in a normal, maybe less chaotic area, it'd be pretty easy to tell what windblown would look like versus a fluvial river-based deposit. And that's because of the rounding of the grains, right? Like so, Yeah, and the rivers, frosting, right? I think we talked that with yeah. Dr. Osen with the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so you'll you'll see that if you have mature river sediment, it's going to be really rounded. Windblown stuff usually is more angular. But once again, since this particular setting is so close to the Rockies and this other unit that is exposed to the southwest of the deposit, it's so close to that that it wouldn't have had much rounding and abrading on the grains. Yeah. So it's not as, it's not really as evident. You can't really rely on that. We can't just say, hey, we don't really have to spend any money on this. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> now they, they're like, figure it out. their heads. Yeah. And they're like, what do we do? And so mineralogy and geochemistry is the answer. I, I know I like, I was about to say, I was about to say, I'm I'm sure you're going to go somewhere that is like, I don't think of sedimentary rocks. You're like, oh, mineralogy. Yeah. And so provenance studies have been taken over by the mineralogists and sedimentary petrologists. And they look at the heavy mineral assemblages. So I don't think you would ever expect me to say this, but zircon is (laughs) the prize penny here. It's going to be the one that they're going to use the most because it's really durable. But you can also use rutile, tourmaline, magnetite, olive clinopyroxene and uh, orthopyroxene. So basically um, your heavier elements or exactly. I mean, the, the, the heavier minerals that are going to. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's stuff that like is going to endure transport, right? You're going to be able to see like a lot of the quartz and stuff may wash off on down and like the finer stuff, but the zircons, that's what we're really going to be talking about the most. They're going to offer clues on where they came from because they hold, they're so durable that they hold a lot of their history in their cores. So we, those clues come from their isotopic signatures. Okay. Um, and we'll get into that in a minute briefly, but the correct term is detrital zircon, meaning it's like been transported from somewhere else. So how do you, how do you say, how do you say that word again? Detrital. Oh, so Some say, people say detrital. I say detrital. Okay. But anyways, should, I mean uh, like potato, potato. Yeah. 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 We, someone should correct us. Like send us. It's, it's a debate. How do you say, how do yeah. you say it? Is it detrital or? Detrital. Detrital. I feel like detrital actually sounds better. Well, I, mean, I don't know. You just got to try. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh my God. So because part of the reason it's so robust and durable is it handles heat really well. It can survive uh, metamorphism even. Yeah. And it handles it handles erosion based on fluvial environments and it's some of them are so small. Like some of the zircons I've looked at before are like ten micrometer. And they can be so they can be carried even in alien deposits. You wouldn't oh, wow. think that. And so that that kind of causes problems because you can't just look at it and be like, oh, it's here. It, that means it's fluvial. That's not true. So, yeah, it, that also adds more onto the analysis. Yeah, because you have to so, make sure that you're getting a, a good sample that's represented. Right. Yeah. So like, it's like that's the problem with sedimentary rocks is like they usually they have those protoliths. So you're like, where the hell did it come from? And how old <laughs> is it really? Yeah, exactly. And so speaking of how old is they're going to use uranium to lead, thorium and hafnium isotope based dating. And that's going to provide not just one source like you may have, for instance, in the Rockies, a lot of those rocks will be around the same ages. 
depending on what, what you're looking at. And so you could be like, oh, well, this could have came from anywhere if the river crossed these areas or if no melts or whatever, right? Yeah. So likely zircons tend to come from multiple sources and those will be found in the sample set. And that's where statistics comes in. Like you're going to need, usually um, there's some pro- provenance studies that have, I think the last one I read had 1,827 zircons. Good Lord. That they studied. Yeah. I usually, depending on what I was doing and probably here will be more on the order of like 100, 200. You're, um, you'll probably end up finding like 6,000. They're like, get your best right. 10. Oh, yeah. You'll never <laughs> see me again. I'll just be sitting there with an old gray beard under the microscope. <laughs> but what we really want to know is what the dominant fraction is. So you do your statistics and you see where your distribution is. So for zircon, like I said, you have to take multiple samples. And so once you find these, you go out in the field, you get all your samples, then you bring them back. And either you or an unlucky grad student are going to be crushing uh-huh. uh, or like just taking the sediment and you're going to wash them in heavy liquids. The stuff is usually really toxic. I have almost passed out from it once because a professor that I was working for didn't tell me that it was fresh out of the batch. And uh, I'm sitting there under the microscope and I'm like uh, nodding geez. off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? My chest started burning and I was like, uh, not good. You're getting sleepy. Yeah. Exactly. Could have been really bad that I left. I think I remember going back in that room and like talking to you one time. Is that what you were doing back in that in that room? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, passing out on this. But yeah, so you need this heavy liquid because what you do is you throw all your sediment in this heavy liquid and you're gonna catch the stuff that like will be suspended, right? Yeah. And so the stuff that's suspended in it means it's lighter than the liquid itself. Tetrabromium methane is the one if you ever wanna know. That's the one I was using. But stuff that's heavier would sink to the bottom. So you, you want to use something that's lighter than the mineral in question. And you can also do that for, like, if you want to look at other mineral types as well. But Zircon's 4.6 to 4.7. I think I was using, like, a 3.5 to 3.8 density liquid. Yeah, so, so then the, um, the Zircon's would go through and it would catch everything else up and you just scoop it out? Yeah, Is that basically, basically what you, you, like a, you have a catch at the bottom and you drain everything and then you have all your grains. Nice. So then you take those, you dry them, please dry them and wash them so that you don't (laughs) end up like me. Then you you spend hours of microscope work. And so you're going through like with this microscope and little tools looking at each grain of like there could be thousands of grains under your microscope and you're just going through and looking for tetragonal mineral zircon. And it, it can be easy to confuse with other minerals. So like Apatite, monazite, and even quartz, because you're once again you might be looking at fluvial stuff, so a lot of your crystal structure may not be as evident. Yeah. Do you remember the Becky line? Uh, kind is that what did you do with the was that with the oil? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So after you find like all these zircon, so that you don't send the lab a bunch of stuff that's like not zircon. Yeah. You can check it with that because it has a really high refractive index. Okay. And so what you do is you find the oil that has, once again, a less uh, or a lower refractive index. And if all the light wants to go into the zircon, then you know that it's that it has a higher one. And so you can check like where zircon is with these different oils. So yeah. So there's lots of little microscope techniques that you can do. Then you basically mail them off. You have to be careful about what you mail them in because I've sent stuff in vials and the lab will be like, dude, these zircon are just sticking to the walls of the glass. We can't get them out. (laughs) (laughs) So I wasted all that time. Um, Oh, that sounds like something I would do. 
like not it pressing so record bad. and we've been talking for two hours. Oh my God. I haven't pre- didn't do that. I didn't press record. <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Oh wait, did I? Yeah. It, it feels like that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but so like I was shown this way by this, like it was this Chinese girl and she was awesome. Like a little, she must've been like a sorceress or something. She made this like origami paper fold thing. And that's we would mail them off in. We mail them off, lab gets them, they check them to make sure you're not an idiot, and they're actually zircon. And then they use something called laser ablation, and this is where the analysis comes in. So they're going to sample, like basically melt the crystal and change it into plasma. And they do it around the rims, the cores, and specific areas, and that'll tell you different dates of zircon crystal growth and like whether it came from a metamorphic area, that kind of thing. You told that story where that, that zircon, you saw like it, it went through pretty much since Pangea, right? Or before even the, yeah. like Rodinia or something. Yeah, and it could record each event, which yeah. is so cool. And so then they're going to like take that plasma and they're going to mix it in a helium, nitrogen, argon gas mixture. And they're going to throw it in a mass spec. And then they measure to a four lead, to a six lead, to a seven, to a eight get ratios. And then they also do the 232 thorium and 238 uh, uranium. And all these ratios are going to give them ages. And right so, on. yeah, you do it with many zircons and then you match the ages with potential source rocks that hopefully have also had these studies done. Most of them have, like in the Rockies. And then you use the other isotopic signatures, like your rare earth earth elements. They're all going to have a specific fingerprint. And then, voila, then you have a paper to write because you found out, like, these are the potential sources and these are, this is data that suggests, hey, this, this deposit came from here. Yeah, and then you want that high number, right? So you can have some kind of at least statistical kind of like validity to it, right? Because you can't just say, oh, like five of these match, therefore it's this, right? So you're going to have to have like quite a, uh, I get why you have to do yeah. a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise your your confidence is so low in what you've done. So, so then I, as, is there a, I guess a quicker way than going through all those, the all the thousands of Zircons that you have to do, <laughs> right? Yeah. So and, I know you said that, that you're, you're under a budget and that seems like if you're going to be paying me like $50 an hour to look at <laughs> Zircons, like I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that they're Zircons. So I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I'm at now is like, that was my immediate answer to who asked me for help. And I was like, well, yeah, you'd use your fund for provenance study. And I'm like thinking over the break, I'm like, I work for the federal government. They don't yeah. <laughs> all this muddy and time. And so I was like, I'm not writing an academic paper. I may, but um, yeah. I'm not, not initially with this study. So then I was like, let me just, let me think about this problem. And I was like, let's take a look at the, just the mineral assemblages of the potential source rocks. And so this study has, Central source in the Rocky Mountains, which said in the, this portion, the river that goes through there is probably in like the uh, granitic gneisses. So they're usually like a biotite or muscovite, even uh, nice. Or, so even your, uh, your... or it's a sandstone that's a product of northern New Mexico protolith. So I need to look at the mineral assemblages of both of those. And uh-huh. uh, when I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, well, I know that I'm probably still going to have feldspar in there. So what what does my deposit have? Is it predominantly albite? Is it the middle uh, members of that solid solution series for plagioclase? Or is it anorthite? How much orthoclase is present? If there's a lot of orthoclase and like the sandstone doesn't have a lot of it, then I might lean a little bit more towards the Rockies as being the culprit. What I did find so far is the sandstone, unlike the granitic Rockies, has appreciable ogite, the kleinopyroxene. 
And so I'm like, all right, well, if I find material from my deposits, haven't been there yet, haven't sampled anything that has a decent amount of ajite, and perhaps if it has a lot of ajite, I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of plagioclase as well. So I'm going to have a clue. I'm going to have a clue that it probably came from the sandstone in the southwest of there rather than the actual granitic rocky. So I, I guess my, so, my, my one question is, but isn't the, the algite, like the, the, the pyroxenes, right? Like, isn't that more of like a, from more of a igneous source rather than a sedimentary source? Yeah, but those sandstone, we've ever, like around here when we see sandstones, they're mainly quartz, right? Yeah. Because they've came a long way. So Ajite, because it's so close to its protolith, so you could even back it up further to say, like, where did the sandstone come from? And that's going to come from probably more of a gabbroic source rock that was in New Mexico. Yeah, okay. So yeah. No, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So, I bet you do have that that Rio Grande Rift. Oh, the Rio Grande Rift, which is a lot of the, yeah, the, the basalts, basalts we were looking at. So, yeah, the flood basalts there, that could be something as well. I need to look more into, like, okay, what is the grain size? That, these, that we're looking at. Are we looking at um, an asinitic size for the ajite? I don't know yet. Yeah, so, so I mean, like, and then the sandstone is not going to be, it doesn't have to look like a like a, a white sandy beach, right? It's just, it, no, the, yeah. the sandstone is just going to be based on its grain size. Exactly, and, and minerals that are in it. So these are all things, like, I can look at that too. Like, if I have, um, if that pops up, then any mineral that's not, like, quartz, <laughs> like, Quartz is good, uh, but it doesn't really tell you that much, like on where it would come from. It can, but when you have these other, like really stark clues, like Ajite, I can't imagine that I'm going to run into Ajite in the area of the Rockies that I'm looking at. So if I find that in my deposit, I'm probably looking at the sandstone as being the parent. Okay, so that's that's how like it's it's kind of fun. You're basically playing detective while doing science. Yeah, no, and it's and it it can come from again like a way lots of different ways too. So I get put yeah. on your big boy thinking pants. Yeah, that I think it's exciting. So we're going to we're going to go through it all, give you all of the options to choose from at the end of it. So <laughs> no, by by the end of this, but hopefully by the end of this I'll season, you. you can just go back and listen <laughs> to it. And moving forward, we're going to be moving like uh, talking about all things sedimentary basins and. Yeah. From structures to oil, gas, we could talk about a lot of a lot of different things. Event correlation and event stratigraphy. I guess we're done with the provenance studies, then, huh? Yeah, yeah. I think right now it's uh, that's where I'm at. Is I've gone through how I would do it if I had unlimited time and resource to not only what your problem is that you need to solve, but what means are you given to solve it? And yeah. you're gonna have to. You may have to change. They, the federal government, unless you work for USGS, doesn't really just pay you to do research for fun. So, yeah. um, I like while I would love to do more zircon stuff, I'm pretty excited to do a different type of the same study so that I can. Yeah, I want to. You should give me a sample. I want to look at it under a microscope. I have a really nice microscope over here. So if I don't have COVID and I get a sample soon, <laughs> you nice. Can yeah. yeah. So do you only have one sample for me to use? Um. So what I'm gonna do is probably gather, I don't know, like at least fifty samples. So, and then uh, go from there. So are you get so you get to are you when are you driving out to Colorado? I don't know. That's a good question. And well, it may be that wait, what are you going to say? I was going to say like are you are you going with other people that you work with? Uh no, no one from so this is someone from a different Okay. District. Yeah, so they they hit me up. I'm working with them on something else. 
and this does not have anything to do with my people at my office. Oh, okay. So I was like, let me be, well, I'll, I'll test negative and I want to go with you. Well, that'd be awesome. I'll go out there yeah. and maybe we could do an episode from the Rocky Mountains. Oh my God. That would be awesome. Yeah, let's do let's it. Let's do it. Keep let's me in it. mind. Yeah. Tell me when you're going. I, 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 okay. I'm a, yeah, I can work around teaching. So <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's the advantage <laughs> of uh, the teaching. Yeah. So, all right. Well yeah. then that's going to uh, wrap it up as my geology pants got a little excited and go out and do some field work so I can just get yeah. out of, <laughs> do sound like <laughs> get excited about doing research. So I think we should do uh, this, my friend. All right, man. Ooh. So uh, this is going to be that freaking rocks. I think we were kind of debating on what what we should really be talking about on on this one. But I I mentioned guitars, and you talked about kind of the the music scene going on right now. So guitar talk. What what what's your go to guitar? I know you were talking about you're kind of wanting to get a a new guitar, maybe. Yeah. So right now I play a Fender Duosonic. Okay. Um, I really like it, but. Prior to that, when I had a Fender Jazzmaster, and that's that has been my favorite guitar I've ever owned. So I'm like, do I go back to that? And I think it it really depends. Like, what style are you going to play, and what's most versatile in that? Yeah. Um, like those those guitars, I would not think would suit you at all. Probably, probably <laughs> um, not. Probably not. Yeah. So I'm looking for something that perhaps has a little bit more clarity, and I don't know, just like. Uh, more balls to it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is what I've, Not, and, and you can, yeah, you can do that with like amps, pedals and stuff, but your guitar, like something I'm noticing is like, I'll talk to my other guitarists that are there. They are so into pedals and I have quite a few, but I'm nothing compared to them. But I'm like, it really still comes back to like how you play and what guitar you play. Yeah. I feel like a, really that if you don't have that right, it doesn't matter about your pedals. Yeah, and I feel like, like you need to know what you can do with your guitar. Like with if you're going to play on like the bridge pickups versus like the, you know, the neck pickups and all of that. Yeah. And just the, I think, yeah, the balls behind it. Like that's what I like about my my Gibson, the Gibson yeah. Les Paul. Is it, it, it that, that one rock and rolls, man. It, it's it, it's, a, it's a hard hitter. But I, I don't know. So I... I actually, I, I, I think like it's, it's so absurd, right? So like, there's like, we have like five or six songs and I think I'm going to use all, like all four of my guitars for the, the different. Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like, well, we also play in different tunings. It's a lot easier, I guess, on stage just to change a guitar rather than sit through that BS of tuning. Yes. But so we do play a heavier song, like one of our heavier songs I play on my Fender Strat, right? Yeah. It's I, yeah. on, on Windy, my baby blue Fendi. But then, so, so like I also have an Ibanez. I I really like the the attack. It's not as low end bassy kind of. You don't get kind of. It's not as muddled whenever it's like boom 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 right. And then I can pinch harmonic yeah. with my Ibanez. But then I started writing a song in uh, I guess drop A sharp. <laughs> it's it's a it's getting like lower. And this this little uh, Epiphone SG that I have, man, I like it, dude. It has like tons of balls to it. I, I don't know. I like those a lot. So since you play in like a lower tuning, yeah. have you considered getting a baritone? I don't know if I know what that is. Basically, 
it's like you put a longer scale on the guitar because then you can tune down to those lower tunings and have like the right amount of tension so that it sounds better. Yeah. So you can have a deeper sound completely. I actually was looking at them earlier because I think it would be freaking awesome to have just this abysmal <laughs> guitar just rumbling underneath everything. So, yeah. yeah, like Gretsch has good ones. Fender, I don't know if Gibson does. I'm, I'm, so I was I thinking about even maybe getting a seven string just so I could just have that uh, just low open dough. Yeah. Like not, so that, but I don't want to go like as low as like being like all genty where it's like, I don't know. I can't even figure out six strings, man. I don't know. Yeah. But there's definitely yeah. a different uh, a feel for each one of those guitars that it, it each one has a different sound. And then like one of the songs, so like I, I do like this little sweet pick uh, that I that I thought I liked doing it on the on the Ibanez, but I, I really like doing it on the um, on that uh, SG because it's like super cutaway and I can get to the higher because I was playing it like yeah. way, I guess, I guess higher on the neck closer to the, the nut. Uh, but then I started doing it an octave higher and it, it just, it, it fits the song better, but I like it on that, uh, Epiphone. Yeah. I'm, so I want to ask you about your Epiphone cause that's, that's something I've considered as like, Hey, keep the Fender, the Duosonic and just get the, the Epiphone and Gibsons. They just have a different sound. Yeah. It's not just the pickups. It's because of those guitars are heavy. Oh, they are really heavy. Yeah. So if and, you're going to be standing for a long time, like you can probably, if you ever see my bandmates, the past couple of practices, man, I, I've, I've just been like, Oh, my back hurts. <laughs> oh, my back hurts. Dude. And, and like, it's like, it's like, I want to go home and just like lay in bed because my back hurts yeah. from hanging, you know, just draping on you, on your shoulder like that for like hours on end. And, I know. But it sounds Yeah. Good. And then I'm thinking like going wild on stage. But I mean, people do it. So. Yeah, no, but that, that that Ibanez has good attack and it's super light and yeah. it's it's a but I feel like the the neck is a little bit wider. So I mean, like if you're it, it's more forgiving. You're not gonna if you're if you're not as precise like I am. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's But uh, I don't know. I don't know that like the, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But we'll figure it out. So, so what, I, oh, what is? Oh, go ahead. What's your favorite guitar you've ever owned? Uh, it's I don't God I, all of them. All of them, all of them. No, because I, I really, I really like, I really like the look of the, because it's a, the, the Fender Strat that I have is a, a 1950s, 60s like replica. So it's like, yeah. it's, it's baby blue. It's really pretty. I like the way that it sounds. It just, it's not the music that I like playing. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I, I I think uh, I like my Gibson because it's like the first uh, the the Fender was expensive, but it, you know the one that was like had three zeros at the end of it. <laughs> like yeah. my Gibson was like the it was it was the big boy. Like I was like, ha, huh. it felt good. But like I don't know, right. I've liked every Ibanez that I've owned. The SG, I, like I have a problem like where you where you change the the pickups. Like it always they always seem to like malfunction on me. I don't know because I switch them oh, so really? much. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, and and that's an easy thing. Because I know my Gibson right now, it. it's like if I put it on the the not the the meaty one. What is that? The neck pickup. But anyways, it it yeah. it, it, it it like it loses its distortion. Like so, I'm just like, God dang it! And I'm like, flip, 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 flip. Like, yeah. damn it. Yeah. Well, uh, Mr. Brian, it, I think it's it's been fun talking about all of this. It's definitely a refresher, and I don't know. We might get into the middle of the season and just be like, man, I'm, I I don't want to talk about sediment stuff anymore. But we'll we'll play it by <laughs> ear. 
Yeah, we'll try. Yeah, so uh, season two, episode one in the books, episode 16 all together. I guess we'll close it out here. So be cool. Stay tuned. And keep it. And keep it on. The rocks. rocks. Hell yeah, brother. (laughs) So we did it. Uh. We did. I, I don't know how we're going to top, but yeah, that freaking rocks like the, the 10 days, 12 days of geology. <laughs> oh my God. I know. That was so awesome. Okay. <laughs>